Our scripture text for today is from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 4, and I'm reading from the message version. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, you indeed are good. And you not only give us the strength to feel the night, as that song we sang just said, but um, you give us the capacity to be weak because it's there that you fill us with your strength. So we don't have to lean on our own understanding. We don't have to lean on our capacity to control, but we can relinquish. We can entrust ourselves to your care. We can actually come to you as a good father. I would ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and help us to do the same. That we would know that at the core of our inner man or inner woman, like the deepest part of us, where all of our shame and joy reside, that we can find you there waiting with the loving affection of a father. So I pray as we turn to your scriptures this day that you would love us with a fatherly affection. One not shadowed by guilt or shame, but uh, one that meets us as you meet us, as one who runs out, who's scanning the horizon for us to come, one who leaves the party to greet us in our bitterness. You are the good Father. And so to you we bring ourselves. Amen. Amen. So when I say the word church, what comes to mind? This is a rhetorical question. I've been working so long for a response, that, but some of you, you were about to say something. That is a rhetorical question. My guess is it's not a co-working space like this, although by now, maybe this is starting to get refashioned. If, if I were to answer that question, maybe in my seminary days, I would have the iconic imagery of steeples and pews. Um, the, the first church I got plugged into had no steeple, uh, but it did have some pews with like, and you couldn't bring your drinks into the sanctuary, that kind of a vibe. Um, but maybe, it, you know, we abandon the pews for nice seating and stages and lights. Uh, maybe that's what comes to your mind. I, I think for most of us, we know that a church is more than bricks and mortar. But what's so curious to me is that when I get to talking with folks, and I am a bit of a, Zach reminded me that in my little interviews here at Gateway that the first video he watched, I introduced myself and I said, well, I'm a bit of a chatty Cathy. That has proven to be true. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I'm around town and I'm chatting with folks in coffee shops or just wherever, uh, and the topic of church comes up, inevitably somebody says, oh, so what do you do? And for a while, I would try and dodge that question by like skirting it, talking about a nonprofit, but I was confronted by my shame there and uh, given a good rebuke. So, I, oh, I pastor a church. And if that's a part of somebody's life, then I get the lowdown. I get to hear about the worship experience. I get to hear about the songs. We see them, they're hymns, but they're remastered. I don't know what that means, maybe rearranged, I don't know. Um, 
I get to hear about the, the teaching style, the aesthetics, all of those things. And at the end of the day, that's what the church comes down to. It comes down to this thing that happens on a Sunday, more or less an event. And those are great conversations. And please hear me clearly, like I'm, I'm a Christian pastor. I, I still am blown away that I get to teach the Bible. Like I get to teach the way of Jesus. This blows my mind. I cherish these times. I don't... I, I don't know if you know, I don't know if I actually have an idea, I just read about it, but like when you discipline yourself to come into the space, this is pushing back against all of the other forces of the world that are pressing you to become a, a certain person. This is actually a defiant space to claim your allegiance to Jesus. I love and cherish a Sunday. And yet those conversations, uh, they, they leave me wanting. It's like that, that can't, this, a Sunday certainly cannot be it. Although it must be part of it, it cannot be all of it. And so let me see if I can put some flesh on what I mean. This would be like if I was having a conversation with somebody and they said, hey, Kyle, t tell me about your family. And if I then started in on, some, I chased some rabbit, which is normal. Um, I said, oh my gosh, let me tell you. Thursday nights, Around six o'clock, depending on how wild things are, I corral some small humans into our dining area. If it's nice, we go outside and sit on the patio, which is usually easier, you know, because at that point the boys are really dirty, so we don't have to like hose them off or anything before they come inside. That's great. And because it's a Thursday, this is when we like observe the Sabbath, so it's some sort of a feast. And we like to try new dishes, and Lebanese is our favorite. You might just go, hold on a second, Kyle. Like, um, that, that's lovely, Sabbath, like Lebanese food, yes and amen to that. Um, it is just north of the Holy Land, so okay, I see where you're going. But, uh, but I wanted to know about your family, like kids, boy, girls, what's going on there? Like what, what, what are your passions, what are your values? Tell me about those things. And I think sometimes this is what we do. We get excited about particular inflections of that, but a night, a meal, even like the Sabbath observance with my family, like that's not my family. We conflate the, like that one event for the whole of Jesus' church. It's like we miss the forest for the trees, as the statement goes. And I want us to start here because it's really easy to get caught up in the trappings of an event. I mean, even here, there's like we roll in crates and do this thing, and it's like this can somehow get caught. You get caught up, oh, yeah, we're a portable church. One day maybe we'll get a thing, but then you say this like qualifier, but we don't have to pay the overhead. You, I don't know. You do a thing like that, I, or now I'm projecting I do that thing. And I want us to start here because... There has to be something more. And so as I was uh, sitting in front of like the, the prospect of offering my final teaching to you as your pastor, Lord willing, I get to come back and just annoy you with long sermons or something like that. But um, I started in on this and I thought, oh, this is, this is natural. Paul has final words to the elders at Ephesus. And I started in on that. That's in Acts chapter 20. And I'm following what, this is, what Paul is saying there. And I'm, I'm writing it out. And I'm like, this is bad. Not only is this bad, this is awkward. I mean, Paul says things like this. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. You know, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. It's like his longest stint among his missionary journeys. And 
I simply cannot say what Paul said. I can't go so far as that. Although over the course of the you know, three-ish years we've been here, there have been some tears. There have been some testing. I just simply cannot go as far as Paul. So I scrapped that talk. And here's, we're going to go on a little journey this morning. Um, you know, I thought, what would it look like for us to envision life together as a community? And so I thought, well, what if we just remembered the story that is ours in Christ Jesus? The story that I certainly didn't begin, but have been a part of. The story that will go beyond my time and by God's grace will continue in measure. And that little story, I want us to start out in Matthew chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over there. And we're going to do this little journey all to the end of answering the question, what is church? Matthew chapter 10, picking up in verse 1, this is what we read. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. Notice that little prepositional phrase, to him. And he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness as you do. Uh, these are the names of the 12 apostles. You know them. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, his son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. You know, we're going to have a boy, so maybe Thaddeus is going to get a rep. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Jess is probably going to hard veto that one. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. This was the message that Jesus came on the scene with. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So quick question and reflection on this. You know, I'm going to track through these passages. We're going to see this progression, working toward this question of what is the church. But I'm going to do a little side commentary like this along the way. Um, why 12? Again, this is, I'm, I'm like, I'm asking rhetorical questions that I'm going to answer. I would love, I know some of you are like, oh, I know. Um, why did Jesus choose to call 12? Why not some other significant number? Why not seven? That's a fairly like robust biblical number. Why not some other number like that? Well, you, you see, 12 is, as you likely know, this culturally loaded number for Jesus and his peers. 12, the 12 tribes, I guess 13, but that's a whole other sermon. 12 tribes of Israel. You see, you have, you have this symbolic number that is like, that's just chock full of meaning. And Jesus is going to do something. He's going to fill this. And when he calls those disciples to himself, he is symbolically saying, hey, Something new is happening. Something new is happening. But if you have ears to hear and eyes to see what Jesus is doing, he's also making a claim to have the authority to start up a new move in the name of Yahweh. He's claiming to be able to act on God's behalf. And this movement goes on, and in the wake of this, the disciples actually participate with Jesus. They, They go and they do the things that he said. They cast out the demons. They see Pretty miraculous things take place. And then we land at this in Matthew chapter 16. You can flip your way over there if you want, picking up in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, so now they are outside of like the designated space that Jesus has talked about. And there in that place, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. The Son of Man just means the truly human one, but Jesus is winking and nodding here to Daniel chapter 7. This is his favorite moniker for himself. So who do people say the Son of Man is talking about himself? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
okay? But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, you know, Peter often gets some flack, always speaking up. What would, you, what would be commonplace among disciples is that you would have an older person who would be able to show the other disciples what it looks like to relate to your rabbi, etc. So Peter is a bit brash, yes, this is true, but this is also the dynamics of the group. So Peter speaks up as a representative and he says this, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And listen to Jesus' reply in verse 17, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, little play in words there, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overcome it. It's so interesting. There we have, for the first time in the New Testament, the church. And normally you'd think like, oh, I have to wait until I get to Acts to hear about the church. But no, right here, we, we get this. Now remember, the Gospels are not written like, this is not like a play-by-play -play moment where you're getting it from an announcer. Like this is after the fact written to spur people on in the encouragement of their faith in Jesus. And, but here, for the first time in the New Testament, we have the mention of the church joined specifically to these 12 disciples. Matthew uses a really interesting word here. It's this word ecclesia. Give that a try, Karen. Everybody else too. That was just <laughs> One time Karen told me, she's like, you know one thing annoying that you do, Kyle, is you make us say words. I'm like, well, we're adult learners and we need to like be drawn out. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So ecclesia, well done. Ecclesia is a compound word. It's just that's uh, two words squished together. The first word is this little preposition, ek, which just means out of. It's littered all over the writings of the New Testament. The second word is klesia, which you're not really going to see like that. It's, it comes from this word kaleo, uh, which kind of sounds like what it is, what it sounds like, to call out. You put these together and you get the called out ones, ecclesia. So li literally, this is the church. The ecclesia, we are, the church is the called out ones. And doesn't that make sense? I mean, think, think about this. We started in Matthew 10, but that's not where the story begins. It goes all the way back. And when you read in the first pages of the scriptures, what you find is that God has called forth creation in the beginning, literally speaking over the heavens and the earth and the sky and calling life into those places. This is what God does. So too here, a new thing is happening. God calls out the church. And in the face of human rebellion, you fast forward to, to Genesis chapter 12, you have God has scattered his enemies in Genesis 11. Then you turn the page, Genesis 12, God calls forth who? Abram, who will later be known as Abraham, calls him out to be blessed so that he might be a blessing to all of the nations. So too, God has called forth the church. He's called forth the 12 to be a blessing to the nations. This is fitting the called out ones. And we actually get a sense that all of this is animated by God's overcoming love, emphasis on the overcoming. And the clue is this little line tucked in at the, verse, at the end of verse 18. It's this line here, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You might go, uh-huh. Let me, let me just share a little bit about that. 
I don't know what a line from a preacher, when, I, when, when any preacher starts talking about hell, your like, bung puckers up a little bit, or you're like, okay, let's go here. Um, I had to say bung at church, just that was for me, not for you, but let's keep going. So you hear hell, what's going on here? Maybe you think of a little red man with like a pointy tail and a pitchfork, or maybe you think of fire. I don't, I don't know what floods your imagination, but let me just ask a simple question. Um, are the gates advancing? No. In fact, I've never seen a gate advance unless it's like one of those that like swings back at you or something like that. But no, the, the, the gates don't do that. What are gates? Gates are defensive. So what is Jesus talking about? How that the gates of hell will not overcome or prevail the movement of the church? Well, it seems as though the imagery is that as Jesus builds the church, and as we'll see here in a moment, with power... That the gates of hell, of death and shame and the grave, that those spaces will not be able to stand in the advancement and the movement of God. It's almost like Jesus is saying that death itself cannot and will not stand in the way of God's overcoming love. Now, this is where you say amen. Amen. Yes, because that, that is, by the way, that's like the gospel. It's almost as though Jesus is saying that God has something to manifest through the church, namely love. And sure enough, this is what we find. If you turn over and you pick up in Acts, what you'll see, so it's... um, is that Luke, who, there's this two-part thing, it's Luke and Acts, and when you get to Acts, what you'll see here is that at the climax of Jesus' life, on the cross at Calvary, and in the resurrection, then power is going to come, and this is how Luke helps us to understand it in Acts chapter 1. Picking up in verse 1, this is what we read. In my former book, talking about the gospel according to Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach, and I'll just stop right there. I can't tell you the amount of times that I have blown right past that little line, thinking, oh, these are Luke's introductory remarks, similar in fashion to how he began began his gospel. But notice that little, little line, all that Jesus began. Apparently for Luke, Jesus is still at work in the world. Now this should blow our freaking minds. Jesus second member of the Trinity, community of eternal love, is still at work in the world. What Jesus began apparently is continuing through his personal presence, which means we should ask how. It's as though God is intent on finishing the good work he started. I've heard about that elsewhere. But again, how? Well, Luke's going to show us. Uh, Just scan down to verse 6. Acts 1 verse 6, then they, his disciples, gathered around him. This is the resurrected Jesus, and they're asking him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? to Israel. Is this this going to go down? And he says, no, no, no. It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but, but you will receive power. Go ahead and read verse 8 with me, if you would, just for a little participation, starting with, but you will. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So surely, just as Jesus promised, it is indeed better for him to depart so that the comforter may come. But he's going to offer more than comfort. Apparently, Jesus' personal presence will come on you so 
that those who follow Jesus in trust will have the evidence of his life in them. I was struck by how strange this language is for us and how I began to feel uncomfortable. Uh, but you will receive power here for it. Let's go. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, the imagery there is like um, this language of baptism is itself related to what people would do when they would dye garments. They would completely immerse them in what was once maybe perhaps white would come out stained a different color. It was completely, it was the same but different, transformed. Through the immersion, the Holy Spirit will fully immerse you. And I... I I was like, oh, why does this feel uncomfortable? So I began to like spurlunk around in my soul. Around, why was that uncomfortable? And I thought, oh, I have these images of Jesus and you too may have these that are a bit askew. I, I can, it can get fixed in my mind, whether through past patterns of thoughts, I don't know, maybe even like demonic things. Like it can get fixed in my mind that Jesus is coercive or domineering or anything but love, maybe even bullying. And as I was thinking that, this, as I was processing through this, you know, spelunking in my soul, that whole thing, uh, I was like, Jesus, Jesus wouldn't want that God to come on him either. <laughs> Domineering, coercive, bullying. No, that's like the furthest thing from Jesus. So I had to like, when, when a lie pops up or an untruth pops up or even something that's curious, like what we get to do in that place is begin to speak truth to that thing. So how do we do this? If we're curious, is this who Jesus is? Well, we speak truth to that thing. Well, do we draw on it? Is it our truth? No, we receive that truth from the scriptures about who Jesus is. So, well, who is my Jesus? Well, our Jesus is this. He is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is the fundamental aspect of his character. So as I rehearsed this, I was like, oh, this is good news. This is the story I'm invited into with Jesus. Think about the life that Jesus lived. He accepted the vulnerable. He bent down into the dirt to receive those who had been shamed. The, the prophets will imagine, the prophet Isaiah will imagine this character, the, the, the love of God manifest in the flesh as one who will, not, who will not break a bruised reed, who will not snuff out a flickering wick. This is Jesus. This is how he moves towards us. I'm like, okay, okay, so this is who he is. That is who will come on me. That's who he wants. Hold on. The Holy Spirit, the personal presence of Jesus wants to flood me in all of that so I might come out markedly different. This is how Luke describes that going down. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, this is a celebration of first fruits for the people of Israel. They're all together in one place. It's 120 in the upper room. Suddenly, like the sound of the blowing of a violent wind came from the heavens and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Just a brief little recap here. 
Jesus comes on the scene announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand, and he does not do so by force, but through love. And the kingdom is what? Well, the kingdom is the range of God's effective will, essentially where what God wants done is done all the time. That's the kingdom. God says it's here through Jesus of Nazareth. And there we see that Jesus' disciples are called to himself, invited to participate in his life, to give themselves away in love, just as Jesus promises he will do. And in a not-so-surprising move, Jesus does what he says he'll do. He actually gives himself away in love. See, they want to make Jesus king by force, but Jesus wants to die for his enemies because that's what love will do. It will come under to build up. So the exaltation of Jesus is on the cross. And what we see is that God vindicates his name by raising Jesus from the dead. You know this scene, the women come to the tomb, Mary, the apostle to the apostles, goes to tell who? The men shut up in the house out of fear. Come on, that'll preach right there. But that's a different sermon for a different time. And then he says, wait for the Holy Spirit will come on you with power. And so there they are waiting, and the Spirit comes. And the imagery that we get there, it's this wild and beautiful imagery. It's, it's that of like new creation and temple imagery. It's the new creation is happening, and oh my gosh, it's like, wow, what's going on? Oh, this is what it looks like. The Holy Spirit falls like flames of fire, a mighty rushing wind. Peter stands up, the Peter who has denied Jesus, but then is reconciled to God. You remember Jesus eats some fish with them, and each time he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Yeah, okay. That Peter then stands up, empowered by the Spirit, announces that same kingdom, that indeed it was manifest through Jesus, that God has vindicated his name, and many come in, some 3,000. And then Luke records this at the end of Luke's, Luke, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2. Picking up in verse 41, this is what we read. Those who accepted his message were baptized, fully immersed. Come on now. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves. And listen to this, because we're still asking that question, what is the church? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, what were the apostles' teaching? That the kingdom of heaven is drawn near in Jesus. devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily all those who were being saved. So again, what is this thing we call church? Well, let me say, this is the church. The church is a community who stands with Jesus filled with his love and compelled by his power. I didn't put those up here because I wanted you to listen and then maybe write them down if that's your thing. The church is a community who stands with Jesus, filled by his love and compelled by his power. But let me just say this. When you read Acts 2, 41 to 47, you might go, well, that's idealized. Like, they're there at Pentecost. This is a part of their cultural rhythms. Um, none of us are going to high holy festivals. Like, 
If I come a few times a week here, that's like a win or a few times a month. This is a win for me. And it is. The reason I'm saying this is because back in the seminary days, I remember sitting in classes and people would go, oh, if we could just get back there. That would be the zeal that I remember them speaking of that with. And I get that impulse, I totally do. But I would say let's not idealize this too much because you know what also cropped up among that, the ideal church? It was a mixed bag. It was a mixed bag then, it's a mixed bag now. I mean, right off the bat, what you see is that some of the most vulnerable people in that community are ghosted. The, the widows are not being served in the daily service, and so they have to like, like pivot and then figure, how are we going to do this? Okay, let's go there. Deacons, there you are. But then you also get ethnic derision. You get outright racism. You get power plays. You get all of the dynamics that are surprisingly or not so surprisingly up and running in the church today. It is a mixed bag. But what's clear is even there, even amid the dysfunction and the transition and the hurt, that God was among those audacious enough to have faith, to trust that Jesus is who God claims he would be. God was among those who had trust. This is the church, a community who stands with Jesus, filled by his love and compelled by his power. And if you were to go on and survey the rest of Acts, you would find that the church lives by the power of God. They like heal the sick. There's these moments where people just come up to Paul, throw a hanky at him, I don't know, like wipe him, and he just like is throwing it around. It's like, like way better than like you get a car, you get a car. It's like you get a hanky, you get a hanky, and people are getting healed. Like people are walking in the shadows of the apostles. I mean, it's just, it's m remarkable. By the way, um, imagine a community where that stuff is going down today. Just, just saying, I mean, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm here for it. You know what I'm saying? Okay. If you go through, you see this stuff. And what blows my mind is there was no strategic vision. There was no sexy aesthetics. There's no marketing wing. There's no charismatic leadership. Although the charisma, the gifts are there. So how does this all go down? I love how Tom Wright says it. He says it like this. The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. Come on. Like you were here for the power, but now I know you're stoked on suffering love. Like you're trying to get you some suffering love today. Suffering love is the plumb line of the church. Power is not enough. Or do you recall our teaching text? If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. The plumb line of the church is suffering love. And it's the Holy Spirit who intends to empower this suffering love. It is both the power, yes, but it is power moving through a people who are willing to, as Jesus will say, 
take up your cross and follow me. And just so we don't get it twisted, here's what the scriptures mean when they talk about love. This again is the Apostle Paul. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. That, that one right there, um, I like have to stop like multiple times in the day. Um, I have, you know this, I have two young boys. They're like a hurricane going through the house. It keeps no record of being wronged. At this point, you want Paul to like shut up, don't you? He goes on. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. So I can say like, I'm here for it. Like I want, I think those things are open and active for us, by the way. Like God gives gifts according to grace to do what? To build up the body. So does everybody need it and want it? Is it a sign of faith? No, it's a gift given to build people up. But at the end, love will last forever. Those things will die out. What that means is in the new heavens and new earth, people aren't going to be speaking in angelic languages. We don't know what they're going to be speaking. I don't know. But what will be there is love. Love will last forever. It will endure. So again, my friends, what comes to your mind when I say the word church? Perhaps the community we call church might just be a people bound together in the suffering love of Jesus empowered by his presence, a people willing to pick up their cross so that we might, like our Lord, give ourselves away in love. Nothing dramatic, nothing flashy. Small acts of generative, suffering love. Bearing with your coworkers snide remarks, lewd remarks, annoying emails, or unresponsiveness of people. It's bearing with one another. How? In love, empowered by the Spirit. This is the stuff. It's not glamorous, but let me tell you this. It has the capacity, as John Tyson says, to build a beautiful resistance to the way of the world. That, that is a beautiful thing. And so, friends, with this vision of the church in mind, I have two final words, which are really two statements that are then unpacked. First, choose Jesus and his kingdom. We must relinquish our feeble attempts to qualify or categorize our discipleship to Jesus to say, oh, I'm a American Christian or I'm a progressive Christian or I'm like a low church kind of Anglican, but not right really because I don't know about the whole Anglican communion thing. Like whatever your qualifier is, we need to let that die so that we might have a fresh wave of devotion to Jesus as Lord. I used to think Christian was a lame term kind of played out, but now I'm like, if somebody asks, I'm like, Christian, yeah, little Christ. Like once a derogatory term, I'm like, yes, I will gladly wear that. And all the baggage that comes with it, I can let it die here and go no further. See, it's curious to me that in Revelation 2, when Jesus visits the church in Ephesus, his call is chiefly to return to him in love and then to remain there. 
What's so curious is that Jesus himself affirms that these folks knew the truth, they could defend the truth, and they'd even suffered for the truth. But the thing that is not there that Jesus wants to call them to, what we often say is to their first love. It is a call to that place. And the good news of choosing Jesus and his kingdom is that we are called first to come, not to go. And so Gateway, please hear this. The call of Jesus on this church, insofar as I understand it and I'm entrusting to you all, is to come to the God who is beckoning you to himself. So often we get it in our mind that it is our ambition for God, our work for the kingdom or whatever that means, that will then like win the affection of heaven, but God has cast his affection on you before you've done a single thing. It is not your action that will drive the affections of heaven. It is the affection of God in Christ that motivates the action. Is this sinking in? Because it's something that has shaped my life with you all, is that if we don't know who we are, if we don't know whose we are, then we will continue to move towards those areas and try and manipulate and control God to get what we want from him rather than the gift that is himself. Choose Jesus and his kingdom. I, action is good. Don't, don't, hear, don't hear me wrong here. Action is good, but it struggles to sustain affection. I actually don't think it can. Have you ever been in a relationship that's kind of quid pro quo? A friendship, a work relationship? You do this, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, that kind of a thing. After a while, that transactional dynamic feels a little scuzzy. Maybe every once in a while you're like, oh yeah, I'll do you a favor. But you know what, we do this too. We say, you, you have somebody over for dinner and then the statement is, next time I got it. I do this. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm now learning that if somebody, I'm like, sitting at dinner and you, know, you have the moment and someone says, I'll get the check. I'm like, Lord bless you. Yeah, and I think that capacity to receive is the invitation Jesus wants to wash us as a bride, wants to wash us with the water of the word. His love is ever waiting, ever present, ever available to us. We get to receive it. By the way, that's probably one of the most difficult things that I bet until our dying breath we will be straining to do, but it is a worthwhile thing to strain to receive God's love, to remove any obstacle to his love. That is the call to choose Jesus and his kingdom. And lastly, this, to choose the way of love. There's this uh, scene in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life that captured my imagination from the first time I heard of it until this very moment. And to be concise, I have some notes here to help me remember it. Uh, if that's a name that you don't know off the top of your head or you don't remember, oh, Bonhoeffer. Yeah, bon Bonhoeffer is an interesting character in the history of the church. Um, he was a Christian pastor and academic who was living during the rise of a National Socialism in Germany. This is like, his most notable work is for discipleship and community, but he's less known for the context that gave rise to that work. See, starting in 1937, Bonhoeffer launched a secret seminary in Finkenwald where he would train these pastors who could perhaps have this potent faith, a, a capacity and a power to, to love God that they could withstand that they could withstand all of the compromise around them and then keep the integrity of their faith intact. So he's raising up these people. And it's there that this work, life together, comes out. 
And when Life Together comes out, it goes to his peers and family members, and some of them are like, um, yo, Bonnie. I don't think they call him Bonnie, none of his biographers do, but this, for, between us, Bonnie, it's a bit much, man. You gotta tone it down. A family friend comes out to Finkenwald and says, looks at it, they have a shared life, a common life. If you're unfamiliar with this, this means there will be bells that ring and people pray. They have fixed hour prayer, they share their life together. This is what they're doing, they're like, maybe for a seminary, but this in no way applies to what you can actually do. And rather than offer a rebuttal, Bonhoeffer gets in the boat with his friend and they row across this small body of water. On the other side, there's a hill. And they go up this hill and when they reach the crest of the top of the hill, on the other side, this is, in, this is now in uh, modern day Poland, but like what they see over there is a base amassing troops for Hitler's army. And by way of contrast, he points back to the seminary and he says this must be stronger than that. See, in the face of compromise, whatever the age may be, there must be a vision potent enough, potent enough to withstand and even flourish in those circumstances. And to my mind, church, that is a vision of suffering love revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus and then given to the, like, to the church through the Spirit. That means to you and to me, to us. This isn't just for back then or in the middle of the 20th century. This is for here and now. Love indeed is the reality that can fully push out fear. And I, I don't want to make light of this because what I'm saying is choose Jesus and his kingdom. Choose the way of love and that the church is the pathway whereby that might come through. And what I know is that many of you carry deep wounds from the church, from me. Like, I know this to be true. I know that you've experienced hurt in this place and your heart is a place of fragile trust. I know this. And I think that God wants to release some of us from that today. I think that God wants to mark this day so that you and I might be released from bonds of bitterness that entangle our heart. I think that God wants to release us so that the life he would have for us, one of patience and humility over pride and hubris might come through us for the good of our neighbor. So church, choose the way of love. This is to open yourself. I know there's risk there. But let me share this with you. You are not alone. Jesus himself promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always to the very end. Pastors will come and go. Jesus will remain. And what's more, Paul will say in Romans 5 that the love of the Father has been spread abroad in your heart through the Holy Spirit. D did you just catch this? Jesus is saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Father's love is being spread through the Holy Spirit. The community of eternal love is choosing to move toward you and toward me. And if that still doesn't feel like enough, just take a moment and awkwardly look at your neighbor. For real. If you can, do this thing where your left eye looks at their left eye. Even if you didn't come with them, look behind you. Anderson, I see you. Yeah. Even if it doesn't feel like God's love is enough, because you can't see it, you can't touch it, the people that you just looked at, those are the ones through whom God wants to manifest his love. 
They're the ones who will suffer with you, and you might suffer their love. <laughs> Think about that. The gateway, the call is this, to choose the way of love, to choose Jesus and his kingdom. This is the church. So let us, let us now remember the one who will build her up and whom the gates of hell will not prevail against.